0: I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan. I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, Season 4, Episode Number 7. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for hair loss practitioners. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for people with all different types of hair loss. Each week, I'll review a handful of different research studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you make sense of them, and give you my thoughts on how a given study just might change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, tinea capitis, trichotillomania, lichen planopilaris, frontal fibrosing alopecia, these are studies in every type of hair loss that exists. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was produced by the Donovan Hair Academy. The podcast was created to help all those who help all those with hair loss. It was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The first Monday of each month is dedicated to studies in androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata, and that's where we will turn today. It's my great pleasure to review with you five studies. For those of you who want a brief five to ten minute overview, a mini podcast within our longer podcast, well, I'll give that to you now. And for those of you who want a bit more detail, detail that will help you integrate these new studies into your own practice, well, you and I will dive into these studies together. Thanks so much for joining me on this incredible journey. So we'll begin by a study... By Rataru in the Annals of Dermatology and Venereology in the March 2023 issue. This was a very nice study of an eight year old female who had severe inflammatory tinea capitis developing within 10 days of starting baricitinib, the JAK inhibitor baricitinib, for treatment of alopecia areata. Tinea capitis due to M. canis was identified baricitinib was stopped and the tinea capitis was treated. And we'll take a look at a couple other studies looking at tinea capitis developing quite quickly in some patients with JAK inhibitors. Then we'll go on to look at a very nice study looking at the treatment of alopecia areata with another JAK inhibitor, Upadacitinib. A study by Flora and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology from February. These are authors from Australia. A really nice study of 25 patients treated with patacitinib, rinvoke, for alopecia areata. And what I particularly liked about this study is that there were 13 patients with severe alopecia areata, salt score 50 or higher, and 100% of those patients achieved a salt score of less than 20 A SALT score of less than 20 is considered a cosmetically acceptable cutoff for a pretty good result. It doesn't mean full growth, but it means a pretty good result. And of 13 patients in this study with severe alopecia areata, they all achieved a SALT score less than 20. So, pretty nice study. We'll take a look at this together. Really liked this study. Then we'll go on to look at a study looking at the link between alopecia areata and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. A study by Joshi. In clinical experimental dermatology showing that patients with alopecia areata had about a three-fold increased risk of adhd we'll take a look at this study and we'll also look at prior literature a 2019 study showing that adult patients with adhd had about an eight-fold increased risk of alopecia areata and a 2021 study by ho and colleagues showing that children with adhd had about a 30 percent increased risk of alopecia areata so clearly there's a link Between ADHD and alopecia areata. And we'll take a look at this nice new study by Joshi. I think this is a fascinating concept. I've been asked this a lot lately, and I don't think I was asked this question all that much in years gone by, but it seems to be a topic of interest in 2022 and 2023, so I was very interested to see this study. There clearly is a link. We don't fully understand why, but we'll dive into this study by Joshi and colleagues together. And then we'll look at a study by Kwan and colleagues, the 52-week data on baricitinib for treating alopecia areata. You may be familiar with the 2022 study by King and colleagues from the New England Journal. We reviewed that study last spring, 2022. That was the 36-week data for baricitinib, showing that a third of patients achieved a SALT score of less than 20. These are patients with severe alopecia areata. Now the authors published the 52-week data from the BRAVE AA1 and BRAVE AA2 trials. This was an extension trial, so there was no placebo group reported in this particular study, but there were 465 patients from the BRAVE AA1 who continued baricitinib, and 390 patients from the BRAVE AA2 who continued baricitinib, and the proportion of patients achieving assault score less than 20, which was the primary endpoint increased very slightly. It didn't increase all that much with four more months of treatment, but the proportion of patients achieving a SALT score less than 20 in the BRAVE AA1 increased from 39% to 41%, and in the BRAVE AA2 increased from 36% to 37%. So not a huge increase. We'll take a look at this data together. There were two patients who developed cancer, one breast cancer, one skin cancer. There were no blood clots, no deaths, and side effects in general were fairly similar to the data obtained in the 36-week data. So we'll dive into this together. These studies are really important. We need long-term data for JAK inhibitors in alopecia areata, and here we're at 52 weeks. Of course, we need data 7 years, 10 years, 15 years, but this is a start. This is a whole new era, and this is really important data and we'll dive into this together and we'll conclude by a study by dr donati's group in published in skin appendage disorders looking at 30 patients who were treated with microneedling these were male patients with male balding who were divided into two groups one receiving a microneedling protocol with a 1.5 millimeter device and a second group receiving Microneedling with a different device, but again with 1.5 millimeters. There were no benefits of microneedling in this small study. And we'll take a look at this study. We'll talk about other microneedling studies. Microneedling is relatively new and quite popular, of course. Some studies suggest it works, some studies suggest it doesn't work. I think we need to know both, and I think we need to have a healthy mindset for what constitutes good clinical studies. And we need long-term data. This study by Dr. Donati's group teaches us that maybe some patients get some benefit at a few weeks after completing treatment, and then some patients lose the benefit. And so just because a patient has a benefit with microneedling at four months or five months doesn't mean they're going to maintain that benefit at month nine or ten. And so we'll dive into this together. I think this is an important study. The microneedling literature is just as confusing and complicated as the PRP literature, but we need to know it all. We need to know the evidence that guides us in our clinics. Whether confusing or not confusing, whether studies are good or not good, we need to know it. So let's begin a study by Raturu and colleagues in the Annals of Dermatology and Venereology, March 2023, titled Severe Inflammatory Tinea Capitis, and a child receiving baricitinib therapy for alopecia areata. Infections are important to know about in patients on immunosuppressants, and that includes JAK inhibitors. Patients on JAK inhibitors are at increased risk for a number of infections. There's a whole wide array of bacterial, viral, fungal, opportunistic infections that can occur, and that can include... An increased risk of tuberculosis, that's why we need TB skin testing before we start. We need to be aware of the possibility of herpes zoster or shingles reactivation, and some patients should be encouraged to have shingles vaccination before starting JAK inhibitors, depending on their age group. There can be an increased risk of urinary tract infections, cellulitis, pneumonia, as well as other ...types of infection, including fungal infections. So we need to be aware of of infections. And when patients present with symptoms, whether cough or rashes or changes in how they feel, we certainly need to take it seriously. And this was a study looking at an 8-year-old girl who developed inflammatory tinea capitis quite quickly, within 10 days... Of starting oral baricitinib for alopecia areata and she's eight years of age and she was started on two milligrams the patient developed multiple red nodules with pustules in the scalp and on the neck she had lymphadenopathy cervical adenopathy and the infection was cultured she grew m canis microsporum canis The baricitinib was stopped and the patient was started on oral terbinafine as well as topical therapy with cyclopyrox cream. And after four weeks of treatment, the tinea capitis cleared. So I really like this study. It it was very interesting to know just how quickly the severe inflammatory tinea capitis developed after initiating baricitinib therapy. Another report by Fioku and colleagues in dermatologic therapy in 2022 titled Disseminated Tinea Corporis Under Baricitinib Therapy for Atopic Dermatitis described a 36-year-old man who developed tinea corporis within days of starting baricitinib. So another nice reminder that patients can develop tinea capitis within, within days. It can be quite quick. And so if someone starts a JAK inhibitor on Tuesday and phones on Friday or the following Monday and, and says they have a rash. Well, certainly you, you think about drug rashes and you think about other things. But wow, tinea capitis is on that list or tinea corporis or, or fungal infections are on that list. So can be quite rapid. So the Fioco study was a study in atopic dermatitis, but nevertheless has some important lessons for us. 36-year-old man with atopic dermatitis with disseminated tinea corporis. The baricitinib may have prompted a reduction in lymphocytes, a lymphopenia, as well as a slight reduction in monocytes and eosinophils and that uh, may have facilitated fungal infections. He grew T rubrum. Baricitinib was stopped, systemic therapy was started. And the patient was started on terbinafine along with Cyclopyrox cream and Cyclopyrox shampoo. Now, these were patients that had just started treatment with baricitinib. So, of course, it makes sense to stop baricitinib and treat. And generally speaking, there's some debate whether JAK inhibitors should be stopped when patients have certain types of infections. Generally speaking, it's, it's never a bad idea. And this is an ongoing source of research. Do we need to stop Jack inhibitors with every single shingles infection that occurs? Do we need to stop Jack inhibitors with every single COVID infection that occurs? Well, the answer is probably no, but it's never a bad idea to err on the side of caution with many infections, and it's never a bad idea to ask colleagues uh, in the infectious disease world. For advice, when people have infections, we need to treat infections seriously in patients on JAK inhibitors. Fortunately, in the COVID era, we realized that baricitinib is FDA-approved for certain types of COVID infections to shut down inflammation in the lungs. So there may be situations where a patient with alopecia areata who develops COVID-19 may be continued on a JAK inhibitor, and we've talked about that in prior episodes, and data from Korea, which we talked about before, taught us that maybe there are patients with shingles, provided it's not you know, close to sensitive structures, like the eye, or no evidence for a disseminated shingles, or uh, no evidence for you know nervous system involvement, that there may be a certain proportion of patients with shingles that we may continue the JAK inhibitor. But... You're never at fault to stop a jack inhibitor for a period of time, treat the infection, make sure the patient's doing well, and then restart. But I would certainly encourage you to take these infections very seriously and to get expert advice from other colleagues who have experience treating these. It's never a bad idea. And in these two cases, the baricitinib was stopped and the tinea capitis or tinea corporis was treated. So the conclusions here in this study by Roturu and the study by Fiocco is that tinea tinea capitis, tinea corporis, can occur quite quickly in immunosuppressed patients on JAK inhibitors. Cultures are important. You really want to take these infections seriously. And if there's something you can do to prove this infection, you should do it. And that includes cultures. We've talked about tinea capitis in prior episodes and how not everyone takes cultures, but that's particularly important in patients on immunosuppression. You really want to know what fungal organism you're dealing with so that you can make sure that you're targeting it with appropriate therapy. And in immunosuppressed patients, many dermatologic rashes can kind of take on different morphologies. And there's been patients with tinea corporis that have been misdiagnosed as scle or forms of lupus and they may not look like classic rashes and so if you have patients on immunosuppressants and they're developing rashes that don't quite look like a classic rash biopsy it that's really an important lesson scrape it culture it if there's pustules swab the pustules you want to treat infections seriously and that's really an important message here so we move on now to a study by Flora and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, February 2023, titled Treatment of Alopecia Areata with the Janus Kinase Inhibitor Upatacitinib, a retrospective cohort study. I really like this study. Upatacitinib, also known as Rinvoke, is FDA approved for many conditions. And at my last check, there were six 2019 saw its FDA approval for rheumatoid arthritis, followed by psoriatic arthritis in 2021. And last year was a huge year for upadacitinib, with FDA approval for ankylosing spondylitis, ulcerative colitis, atopic dermatitis, and non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. And so it really entered the dermatologic community, with its approval for atopic dermatitis in age 12 and over. And that was really important because there are many, many children that have alopecia areata and atopic dermatitis. And the approval for atopic dermatitis 12 and over has really increased the number of children that I see with alopecia areata who have very refractory atopic dermatitis. And we have this... FDA-approved drug, Upatacitinib, which can target their atopic dermatitis. And, of course, we wonder whether it's going to help their alopecia areata as well. And accumulating evidence suggests that, yeah, Upatacitinib can help alopecia areata. This is a JAK1 inhibitor. So there have been case reports looking at the role of Upatacitinib for treating alopecia areata. We reviewed a number of those reports in prior episodes. And so this study by Flora and colleagues was a study from Australia, where the authors conducted a retrospective cohort study, looking at all patients in their institution that were treated with upadacitinib from October 2021 to July 2022. And so they had 25 patients in their study. The median age was 31, 28% were men, 72% were women. And all patients were started on upadacitinib at a dose of 15 milligrams per day, and three of the patients had their dose increased to 30 milligrams after four weeks of therapy. The median alopecia salt score was reduced from 50 down to 25 after 12 weeks of treatment, down to five after 24 weeks. So a SALT score is a measurement of the severity of alopecia areata. A SALT score of 0 means complete hair regrowth, and a SALT score of 100 means complete hair loss. And so these patients transitioned from a median SALT score of 50 down to 5 after 24 weeks or 6 months of treatment. What I really liked in this study, and I pulled up this study and I looked at all their charts, is that there were 13 patients who had a SALT score of 50 or more. And we're particularly interested right now in understanding how these different JAK inhibitors benefit patients with severe alopecia areata. And we define severe alopecia areata as a SALT score of 50 or more. And in this study there were 13 patients with a SALT score of 50 or more. And all 13 patients achieved a SALT score of less than 20 at week 24. And 8 of those 13 patients with an initial SALT score of 50 or more achieved a SALT score of less than 10. And so in the alopecia data research world, a SALT score of less than 20 is often used as an important cutoff to signify cosmetically significant outcomes. And as we'll talk about in just a minute, when we review the baricitinib data in the BRAVE AA1 and BRAVE AA2 day, study, a SALT score of less than 20 is an outcome that researchers and the FDA look at very seriously in terms of understanding the benefits of a drug for patients with severe alopecia areata. And so in this study, 100% of patients on upadacitinib achieved a SALT score of less than 20, 100% of patients with severe alopecia areata. The Dermatology Quality Life Index, DLQI, reduced from a median of 15 down to 8 at week 12, and finally down to 2 at week 24. And the upadacitinib was well-tolerated, no lab changes, infections, and no buddy-stop treatment due to any sort of adverse event. So I really like this study. I thought it's pretty exciting data for Upatacetinib. We need these studies. We desperately need studies looking at severe alopecia areata with more than case reports so that we can really gain an understanding of how well these work in patients with more severe disease. 25 patients is a small study. It's not the same number of patients as in the brave A trials, and it wasn't a randomized placebo-controlled trial as well. But 100% of patients with severe alopecia areata achieved a SALT score of less than 20. That's pretty significant. And so it's not completely fair to compare this small trial by Flora and colleagues to the brave AAA trials. But there's a few helpful comparisons that are needed. The mean SALT score at the beginning of the study was 61.5 in the FLORA study, 25 patients. The mean SALT score at the beginning of the BRAVE AA1 and AA2 trials was around 85. So the BRAVE AA trials started with patients with quite advanced hair loss The proportion of patients with a SALT score of 95 to 100, so almost complete hair loss or complete hair loss, was 53% in the BRAVE AA1 and BRAVE AA2 trials, and it was 0% in this study by Flora and colleagues. So nobody had alopecia totalis. But when we look at the proportion of patients achieving a SALT score of 20 or less, we see that it was 36% in the BRAVE AA trials, And it was 100% in the patacitinib trial. And the proportion of patients achieving a SALT score less than 10, so really fantastic growth, was 61% in this study by flora and 25% in the BRAVE AAA trials. I think this is really important. It just gives some perspective. Certainly the BRAVE AA1 and AA2 trials started with patients with very severe alopecia areata it was a different type of a study, but it gives perspective on at least the potential of upadacitinib to be helpful and gives perspective on the need to continue to study upadacitinib in the treatment of severe areata. I really like this study. I'm certainly using a lot more upadacitinib, and using a lot more upadacitinib in younger patients. And I really like this study because it gives some good credibility to you know using this drug not only in patients with atopic dermatitis but patients with alopecia areata as well regardless of whether they have atopic dermatitis we move on now to a study by Joshi and colleagues looking at the relationship between alopecia areata and, a- and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder a study published in Clinical and Experimental Dermatology, March 2023. And the article was titled, Association of Alopecia Areata with Alcohol Use Disorder, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and Insomnia, a Case Control Analysis Using the All of Us Research Program. We're going to focus here on the relationship between alopecia areata and ADHD. But this study also showed a link between alopecia areata and alcohol use disorder and an increased risk of insomnia. But let's focus on ADHD. Research in the last four years has highlighted an interesting association between attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and alopecia areata. We don't know all the details yet, all those Mechanisms and links really haven't been fully worked out, but it's clear there's some kind of a link. Singham published a study in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in 2019 titled Association of Alopecia Areata with Hospitalization for Mental Health Disorders in U.S. Adults. And the authors of that study sought to determine whether alopecia areata is associated with any mental health disorders and they showed that indeed it was, and in particular, they found a link between ADHD and an eight-fold increased risk of alopecia areata. Hoen and colleagues published a study in 2021 titled Increased Alopecia Areata Risk in Children with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder and the Impact of Methylphenidate Use a nationwide population-based cohort study. This study by Ho and colleagues set out to determine whether the risk of alopecia areata is higher in children with ADHD than those without ADHD. And what the authors found is that the risk of alopecia areata was about 30% higher in children with ADHD than those without. And so Joshi and colleagues now Set out to further the understanding of this link between ADHD and alopecia areata. They used this All of Us database, which they've used for several studies, to search cases of alopecia areata and to compare cases in a one to four manner with age, sex, and race matched controls. And so the authors here found a threefold increased risk of ADHD. In patients with alopecia areata and so these studies are important they highlight this association between ADHD and alopecia areata there seems to be a true link the the exact details aren't clear but it seems that patients with ADHD have about a threefold increased risk of alopecia areata and patients with alopecia areata have an increased risk of ADHD and so I think this is important this data is Still not entirely clear how we should screen. Should we be screening children with alopecia areata for ADHD? Well, some authors would suggest yes. I think certainly in in children and in adults with alopecia areata, you want to take a full history and understand: Do they have asthma? Do they have eczema? Do they have issues with the bowel? Do they have issues with joints? Do they have issues with Depression? Do they have issues with anxiety? I think you really want to understand all the systemic associations that are possible. We're now learning that alopecia areata is associated with metabolic syndrome, so increased risk of high blood pressure, high blood sugars, obesity. So I think we really want to have an open mind. And so when we see patients with alopecia areata, we want to be thinking head to toe, are there any associations that are relevant that I should be asking this patient? I think this study reminds us that we probably want to be thinking about ADHD. We want to be asking in children with alopecia areata about their development. We want to take birth histories. We want to know how their growth and development has been. We want to know about how school has gone. Are they bullied at school? Are they doing well in school? And is it possible that some of the issues at school are related not only to alopecia areata and the stresses that children experience from alopecia areata, but is it possible that some of the school performance is related to ADHD? Not all children with alopecia areata develop ADHD, but a proportion do. And I think we have to have an open mind, and I think we can change the trajectory of many patients, both children and adults, if we recognize ADHD and help them with the resources that can help them in their schoolwork, homework, and other activities. It can be life-changing. So we move on now to a study from March 2023 in the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology, looking at the Brave AA1 and Brave AA2 data at 52 weeks, a study by Quan and colleagues. I really like this study. And in order to understand the Quan study, you need to understand the original 36-week data from king and colleagues from the new england journal from march 2022 and we reviewed this in prior episodes the brave aa1 and brave aa2 trials were randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials looking at baricitinib versus placebo and there was a baricitinib 4 milligram group a baricitinib 2 milligram group and a placebo group and in the brave aa1 and brave aa2 trial the authors wanted to figure out how do patients with severe alopecia areata do on 4 milligrams, 2 milligrams, and placebo. There was about 600 patients in the Brave AA-1, 500 patients in the Brave AA-2, and about 90% of patients completed the study. And in that Brave AA-1, Brave AA-2 New England Journal paper, the authors showed that about 40% of patients in the BRAVE AA1 achieved a SALT score of less than 20 at week 36. And 36% achieved a SALT score of less than 20 in the BRAVE AA2 trial. So that's 36 weeks. So in this new study, the authors looked at the outcomes of patients at week 52. And so this is an extension trial patients who had been in the Brave AA-1 and Brave a 2 continued their baricitinib, either their 2 milligram or their 4 milligram dose, and the authors looked at the SALT scores at week 52. There were 465 patients that continued in the Brave AA-1 and 390 patients in the Brave AA-2. And so how did patients do at 52 weeks? Well, we just saw that at 36 weeks, that about 38%, 38 38.8% of patients had a SALT score of less than 20 in the Brave AA-1. Well, at 52 weeks, that increased from 38.8 to 40.9. So just a few percent more patients had achieved a SALT score of less than 20. In the BRAVE AA2, the proportion of patients achieving a SALT score of less than 20 increased from 35.9% to 36.8%, so about a percent higher. So not a huge number of patient, proportion of patients more that it met the primary endpoint cutoffs, but there was a slight increase. Side effects included the side effects that we saw at the 36-week time point including upper respiratory tract infections, headaches, acne, urinary tract infections, and herpes zoster. There were two new cancers that were reported in this extension trial. So that brings the total to three so far. There was one B-cell lymphoma in the BRAVE AA2 trial that was reported at the 36-week data. And now in the 52-week extension trial, we have one case of squamous cell cancer and one case of ductal carcinoma in situ happening at 10 months in a patient receiving four milligrams of baricitinib. There were no blood clots. There were no opportunistic infections, TB, deaths that were observed in this extension period. So the authors point out that patients continued to improve at week 52, that is true, but it's it's a pretty small improvement. There was 38%, 39% of patients in the Brave A one that achieved the endpoint, and that just increased a very few percentage points in the extension trial. It's surprising that there wasn't a greater proportion of patients that achieved a SALT score of less than 20. I was hoping that we might land somewhere closer to 50%, but it did increase from... up to 41%, but it was just a small number of patients that increased in terms of the proportion meeting those primary endpoints. And so what that tells us is that after a year on baricitinib that there still is a very large number of patients that don't achieve a SALT score of less than 20. And I think that's important that baricitinib doesn't help everyone In fact, there's a very large proportion of patients that it it really doesn't help completely. I think we tend to forget that. One argument is that we can combine it with other treatments. We can use baricitinib with oral minoxidil. We can use baricitinib with steroid injections. We can use baricitinib with other treatments. That's true, but I think we have to remind ourselves that baricitinib only helps a minority of patients achieve um, good outcomes. And about 25% of patients achieve a SALT score of less than 10. And if you look at the proportion of patients with alopecia totalis and universalis that it helps, it's, you know, 13 15% or so. So I think it's important that we remain open and honest with patients. I see a lot of patients with alopecia totalis and universalis coming in with the expectation that this will regrow their hair. It may. There's certainly incredible outcomes we see nowadays with jack inhibitors. But I think we have to be aware that if someone has alopecia universalis for seven years and comes in to see you, there's a pretty good chance they'll get some benefit. But there's 15% chance, 10% chance, 13% chance that they'll achieve complete regrowth. And so I think we have to be aware of that, that these drugs do not help everyone. And we we need to be aware of that when we counsel patients so that we can give them accurate information and that we can have realistic expectations. These are incredible drugs. They're changing the field of alopecia areata, but they don't help everyone. Safety data is pretty good at week 52. No blood clots. I think that's really encouraging. There's concerns with JAK inhibitors based on the FDA's black box warning about blood clots, cancer, cardiovascular disease, death, infections. So we need to counsel patients about this and watch for it. And in all these JAK inhibitor trials, the FDA is watching very closely for blood clots, cancers, deaths, cardiac disease, infections. And so the fact that there's no blood clots at week 52 is pretty encouraging. And we need to continue these studies longer, but that was really great to see. There were two new cancers, a skin cancer, squamous cell carcinoma and ductal carcinoma in situ, adding to the lymphoma reported in the 36-week data. Now, the authors say that it's difficult to know if these Cancers are casual associations or not. People develop cancers in the real world. And so patients are going to develop cancer in trials. And I think what we need is long-term data. And it may be that there is data out there suggesting that in other types of disease models, the baricitinib doesn't seem to have a great risk for cancer. But I think we need the data. And we need long-term data. And so um, this needs to continue to be followed. So we move now from alopecia areata to studies of androgenetic hair loss, a study by Kakizaki and colleagues in Skin Appendage Disorders, the January 2023 issue, titled Efficacy and Safety of Scalp Microneedling in Male Pattern Hair Loss. I really like this study, a study which showed that In this study, microneedling didn't seem to help. So the mechanism by which microneedling may help hair growth is not entirely clear. But studies in animal models have suggested that microneedling may promote Wnt-beta-catenin signaling, may stimulate dermal papilla stem cell proliferation, may help angiogenesis, may help drugs to penetrate into the skin more efficiently, like minoxidil. And there's some theories that microneedling might enhance enzymes in the skin, like the minoxidil sulfotransferase enzymes, which in turn might help minoxidil work better. So microneedling is a technique where punctures are placed into the skin at various depths, one millimeter, 1.5 millimeters, 0.75 millimeters, in order to stimulate inflammation with the hopes to promote collagen production and promote release of growth factors, which can ultimately stimulate hair growth. And many prior studies have evaluated the benefits of microneedling, especially in association with other treatments, microneedling plus minoxidil compared to minoxidil alone. Some studies have looked at microneedling alone, and how it acts itself. But many studies have looked at microneedling and its ability to help other treatments work better. Any discussion about microneedling needs to bring up the topic of the Durat 2013 study in the International Journal of Trichology, titled A Randomized Evaluator-Blinded Study of Effective Microneedling and Androgenetic Alopecia, a pilot study. So the Durat study of 2013 was really a landmark study in our field. There were 100 patients with mild to moderate androgenetic hair loss that were divided into two groups. One was treated with weekly microneedling with a 1.5 millimeter device, along with twice-daily minoxidil lotion. The second group was given only minoxidil lotion. And the response was assessed on a 7-point scale, as well as hair counts. And the mean change in hair counts at week 12 was significantly greater in the minoxidil microneedling group compared to the minoxidil-only group. And investigators felt that 40% of patients in the minoxidil microneedling combo group had really good results, compared to none in the minoxidil Only group. Patients themselves had favorable views of the effects of microneedling. 82% of patients felt that there was 50% or more improvement when they were using minoxidil and microneedling, compared to just 5% of patients in the minoxidil only group feeling they had favorable outcomes. So, a really nice study, a study that looked at outcomes at Week number 12. And as we'll see in a minute, long term studies of microneedling may be really important because it may be possible that patients can have some benefits of microneedling early on and then lose those benefits over time. And so, just because someone comes into clinic with nice results at three months or four months, doesn't mean they're going to have nice results at six months, nine months, 27 years. And I think we tend to forget that. And most of our studies don't go very long in the microneedling world. And this study we'll review now teaches us that, okay, maybe just maybe we we should be excited at data at week 16, 18, 24. But maybe we should really want to see data at week 36, 52, 92, 9002. So this is a study, Kakizaki, January 2023, of Skin Appendage Disorders. This study looked to evaluate the benefits as well as the risks of microneedling in males with male pattern hair loss. There were 30 male patients enrolled in this study, and they were randomized to two groups. Microneedling with a roller, 15 patients, and microneedling with a tattoo cartridge, 15 patients. All patients had the microneedling treatments every four weeks, for a total of four times and then follow-up visits occurred after the microneedling was done the authors studied two microneedling devices and both were set to a depth of 1.5 millimeters there was a doctor roller device with 192 needles which was a roller device and then a tattoo machine gun with 17 needles again with 1.5 millimeters. Microneedling was done for pinpoint bleeding as the endpoint, and participants were instructed not to wash the area for 24 hours. And what sort of outcomes were assessed? Well, clinical pictures were taken before and after. Hair density was analyzed through dermoscopy in a small clipped area, and biopsies were taken to look for new collagen synthesis as well. So there were 30 patients in the study, 15 in the roller group and 15 in the cartridge group. Three patients in the roller group and one in the cartridge group didn't come for their first follow-up visit, so the number of patients is dwindling down. And in the second follow-up visit, 16 weeks after the last microneedling session, There was another four patients in the roller group and another three patients in the tattoo cartridge group who didn't show up. So that means there was just 12 patients in the roller group and 14 patients in the cartridge group who attended their first follow-up appointment at the end of the microneedling. That's at week four. And there was just eight patients in the roller group and nine patients in the cartridge group who attended their appointment at week 16. So we've gone from 30 patients to 17 patients. The mean age of the population was 45.6 years, and it ranged from 23 to 67. The duration of baldness was a mean of 12.8 years. And the mean age of onset of the disease was 31 years. And this is important because we'll come to see in a minute that in this study, microneedling didn't seem to help. And the authors proposed that, well, maybe it didn't help because the patients in this study were slightly older, had baldness for longer, and had their disease starting at older ages compared to other studies. So we don't know why patients in this study didn't achieve benefit. Maybe it's because microneedling doesn't work, you know, everybody. But it's important to take note that the mean age of a population in this study is 45.6 years, not 20, not 18. And patients had baldness for a mean of 12.8 years. So they've had baldness for a long time. At the first follow-up visit, four weeks after the, se- after the microneedling ended, and again, they had microneedling every month for four months, and then they came to their very first follow-up appointment, one month after the microneedling last session. Four participants in the roller group and two participants in the tattoo group had an improvement in clinical pictures. And of the responders, only two patients in the roller group and one in the cartridge group had a sustained improvement at the last follow-up visit at week 16. And neither group had a improvement in total hair count at four months. And in fact there was a trend ...towards a decrease in total hair counts. There are not many side effects. There were no reports of infection, edema, worsening of seborrheic dermatitis, itching. The microneedling did stimulate collagen in scalp biopsies from six patients... ...with the roller group and four patients with the cartridge group. So this was a nice study, a small study... ...but a nice study by Dr. Donati's group showing... The potential benefits of two commercially available microneedling devices, and unfortunately, didn't seem to do much. The study showed no benefit in hair density after four monthly sessions of microneedling. And the authors point out that these results differ from previous studies, because some previous studies have shown an improvement with microneedling. So why does this study not show an improvement and other studies show an improvement? Well, it's a guess. It could be that the populations are different. It could be that truly microneedling doesn't work. But the authors here hedge the bet that maybe it's because the participants in this study were older, had baldness for longer, but that's just a guess. It's not clear why. The authors remind us that not every study in the medical literature shows that microneedling works, and they draw our attention to a study by Lee and colleagues in 2013, and that study showed that microneedling worsened hair density in female patients. It was a split scalp study of women with female pattern hair loss, and one side compared to microneedling, and the other side of the scalp compared microneedling and growth factors. And after 5 weeks of treatment there was an improvement in hair density in the side treated with microneedling and growth factors but the side treated with microneedling alone showed a worsening of hair density. And so there are studies out there that shows microneedling doesn't do much. But there's a lot of studies out there that show that microneedling indeed helps. And this study by Bowen colleagues from 2020 titled Randomized Trial of Electrodynamic Microneedle Combined with 5% Minoxidil Topical Solution for the Treatment of Chinese Male Androgenetic Hair Loss, showed that microneedling alone was similar, if not better, than topical minoxidil. And when you combine microneedling with minoxidil, you get you get even better results. So we're still in the early days of understanding scalp microneedling. We can't really agree on protocols. What depth of needle do you use? Do you use a roller, a stamp, a pen? How often do you do it? How exactly should you do it? But the study by Kakazaki that I just reviewed are really important because it reminds us that not all studies show a benefit. And it shows us that some patients get worse. And so I think this is important. There are patients who get worse with microneedling. I see them every day. There are patients that get worse with PRP. I see them every day. You really don't see any data in the literature that suggests that PRP causes worsening of hair loss. You don't see any studies in the literature that suggest that PRP causes hair shedding. But basically not a day goes by that someone doesn't call us or email us expressing concerns about ongoing shedding after PRP. Where, Where is that data? I don't know. I don't know where that data is. But this study, and this study by Lee, reminds us that some patients get worse. So we need to be aware of that. So when a patient has microneedling and comes in with worse density, maybe you don't need to go always looking for a telogen effluvium, an alopecia areata. Why are you worse? Microneedling doesn't cause you to be worse, so you must have lost hair because of some other disease. Well, it's good to go thinking broadly and looking for some other disease, of course, but maybe the microneedling made them worse. There's data in the literature that backs that up. So I think that's really valuable to be aware of. And I think in consenting patients, we have to consent them in that regard, that it's possible that if you do microneedling, it could be worse. So if you think you're going to do microneedling with either an outcome to be better or an outcome just to have no improvement, stay the same, you're wrong. There are three outcomes. You're either going to get better, you're going to stay the same, or you're going to be worse. And if that sounds scary, then you need to figure out if it's too scary. And if it's too scary, microneedling is not for you. But there are patients who are worse with microneedling. The study by Kakazaki is also important because it reminds us we need to study the long-term benefits. There were patients at their first follow-up visit that had improvements. And they lost that improvement at the next follow-up visit at week 16. So if patients email and say, Hey, I'm doing microneedling, doc. And I'm four months into it, six months into it, getting better. Great. I'll see you at month 12. Of course, I hope you do better. I hope you continue these great results. But I'm not going to turn my back on the patient and say, Okay, great. Got a great treatment plan growing hair really nicely, uh, uh, microneedling is working. You've got your plan. Go forth. Grow hair. No. We need to follow that patient. Some of those patients are going to lose their results, and some of those patients are going to come in at month 9, 12, and say, hey, doc, I thought, I thought microneedling was working. Now it's not working. I'm not getting the benefits that I thought I was getting. What's with this? So I think those long-term data is really, really important. We need long-term data in microneedling. We need long-term data in PRP. We need long-term data in all of the treatments. But it seems clear that microneedling, combined with various drugs like microneedling and minoxidil, helps the minoxidil get into the skin better. And so that is a different question than evaluating the isolated benefits of
1: microneedling.
0: Does microneedling alone help? Seems to, but we need really good long-term studies. So that's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for joining me. This was season four, episode number seven. We talked about a study looking at the rapid development of tinea capitis in a patient using baricitinib. This was an eight-year-old girl who developed severe inflammatory tinea capitis in just 10 days of starting baricitinib. It was treated successfully, and we talked about a nice study of 25 patients treated with upadacitinib for alopecia areata. And what I was so excited about was 13 of those 25 patients had severe alopecia areata, salt score of 50 or more, and all 13 of those patients achieved a salt score of less than 20. 61% of them achieved a salt score of less than 10. So pretty good outcomes. I think this data is fantastic. I think it really leads us to believe that as we create our pool of Jack inhibitors, which we will be doing in the years ahead, clearly we want to keep baricitinib on the list. It's FDA approved. But we want to eventually think carefully about all these jack inhibitors. Are they truly the same? That'll be the next key question over the next... 10 years, 5 years, are they all the same? We tend to think, yes, they're probably all the same. Maybe, just maybe, some of the jack inhibitors on the way could be slightly better, but we don't know. So we need comparative data. But I think this is really important data for upadacidinib telling us that, yeah, it's probably on the list as a jack inhibitor to consider in the treatment of alopecia areata. And I really like this study. Then we looked at a nice study linking alopecia areata and ADHD. Patients with alopecia areata had a threefold increased risk of ADHD. And we talked about prior studies in literature which have drawn attention to this important link. And I reviewed with you why this is important. That when you're sitting there with the 7-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, 32-year-old, 84-year-old, you want to be thinking head-to-toe of systemic associations that are relevant. You can't ask every single question, but you can ask questions that are relevant. You want to be thinking about thyroid disease. You want to be thinking about depression and anxiety. You want to be thinking about rheumatoid arthritis. You want to be thinking about inflammatory bowel disease. Those risks are low, but you want to be thinking about what what diseases can sometimes occur in a patient with alopecia areata, and I'm going to ask questions to see if there's any remote possibility that that exists in the patient in front of me. So in a seven-year-old, how is your schoolwork going? Does the child want to go to school? Does the child express concerns about being bullied? Is there increased anxiety? Are there emotional issues? How is the schoolwork? I think that's so important as you go about thinking about mental health issues in patients with alopecia areata. I think those types of questions don't take a long time, but they can give you clues. And if there are Things that come up suggesting, you know, I'm not really an expert in diagnosing depression in a seven-year-old, but I'm concerned about some information that mom or dad has shared, and I'd like to have a phone call with the pediatrician. I am not an expert in diagnosing attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but there are some issues that has been addressed in this child's schoolwork or other activities that makes me concerned that maybe this is an issue and I'm going to speak to the pediatrician about it. So you may not make the diagnosis of these issues, but you certainly can be a practitioner that draws attention to the possibility of it. And unless it's in your mind, you will not recognize it. We talked about the nice 52-week data for baricitinib, a study teaching us that the proportion of patients achieving a SALT score of less than 20 Increased just a little bit at week 52. It went up from about 39% in the Brave AA1 to 41% in the Brave AA2 in the 52 week data. So it wasn't a huge increase. It's not that the proportion of patients achieving the primary endpoint went from 39% to 50% or 39% to 82%. No, it increased slightly. So there's a large proportion of patients that are not achieving the primary endpoint. And there's a large proportion of patients that don't get full regrowth. So I think we have to remember that. This data is so important. It's so important for us to have a really good understanding of how well this works. And it's really important for us to understand as we review alopecia areata trials, what was the baseline SALT score in patients? How much did it improve? And this emerging data from the baricitinib FDA approval really teaches us what kind of thinking is needed. And finally, we reviewed a nice study by Kakazaki and colleagues in skin appendage disorders looking at the use of microneedling for androgenetic hair loss. A small study, but nevertheless, a study teaching us in these male patients with long standing male balding, slightly older patients, that 1.5 millimeter microneedling devices didn't seem to do much. And so it adds to the pool of microneedling literature out there. And it's a body of literature which has both positive and negative data and i think that's so important we need all those studies to have a healthy understanding of microneedling but what i liked about this study is it taught us that some patients have benefit at month four five and then they lose the benefit and some patients have worsening and so not everyone has great outcomes with microneedling We reviewed how important that concept is with all of medicine. Not everyone has great outcomes with PRP. Some people do worse. Not everyone grows hair with minoxidil. Some people don't have any response. And some people shed and shed and shed and advance their androgenetic hair loss and never catch up and are worse than before they had started it at all. Of course, that's not a common phenomenon, but we need to keep an open mind that There are many possible outcomes when you treat a patient. It can be that they have good growth. It can be that they have really good growth. It can be that they have no change. And it can be that they have slight worsening. And it can be that they have dramatic worsening. Fortunately, dramatic worsening is not common in our therapies, but we need to have an open mind that some therapies do worsen the baseline hair density. So that's it for this week. Thank you so much. Join me next week. It'll be season four, episode eight. The last episode of season number four. We'll be talking about a potpourri of studies, including studies in telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, tinea capitis, and I look forward to speaking with you again about some new fascinating research published in the last few months that guides us in how we think about hair loss. Thanks again.